Well, just very quickly, um, 31 years ago today was a good day for me because that was the day my wife said yes when I asked her to marry me. So thanks, sweetie, <laughs> for saying yes. So it's also her birthday, too. So I wouldn't be here without her. She motivates me and, and drives me to do my best. The Apostle John said in 1 John 2, 18, that now many antichrists have come. Now, the term antichrist is applied in Scripture specifically. It's also applied generally. Specifically, it's applied to a coming individual in the end times, a guy that we don't know who he is yet. But generally, the term antichrist is also applied to spiritual deceivers. An antichrist is not just someone who is against Jesus, although that's certainly part of the equation. An antichrist is someone who imitates Jesus or attempts to replace Jesus Christ with subtle deception. And one antichrist of our time is the made-up version of Jesus we've been looking at that's been taking the church by storm, the version of Jesus invented by Sarah Young in her book, Jesus Calling, and her similar books. This Jesus, as we've seen, is nothing more than a channeled evil spirit posing as Christ and speaking words or impressions to, to Young. But when we compare those words with the rock-solid standard of the Word of God, which contains the actual words of Christ, we see that the Antichrist of Sarah Young falls far, far short. The August 23rd entry of the 2004 edition of Jesus Calling has, in the supposed words of Jesus received by Sarah Young, a really horrible and erroneous interpretation of Genesis 22 that when Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, it was because he was worshiping his own son and because he had emotional problems. That was the reason. Well, apparently Jesus thought better of his own interpretation because he revised it completely for the 2011 edition of the same entry. But both entries say this, as you entrust others, this is supposedly Jesus talking, as you entrust others into my care, I am free to shower blessings upon them. Meaning that you have the power to free up Jesus to do things. This obviously is total heresy. It plays into the Christian bookstore customer who who has already bought into the false prosperity gospel that we supposedly release God to do things. In one of her greatest mischaracterizations of Christ, Sarah Young portrays Jesus as a passive presence who just whispers. Her August 11th entry, Jesus supposedly says, come to me, come to me, come to me. This is my continual invitation to you, proclaimed in holy whispers. Why is the creator of the universe whispering? He doesn't ever need to whisper. This idea of Jesus being freed by you and of issuing holy whispers, what is this equal? Well, this comes out to a, an impotent, powerless, ineffectual, unauthoritative Savior who is just really, really hoping that you'll listen. That's all he is. Well, the Jesus of the Bible is quite different. Instead of a Jesus who gives out holy whispers, today I'd like to show you the voice of divine authority and what that really looks like. And we come today to John chapter 11, and we'll be looking at 38 through 44. 
This is a passage which displays the, the massive divine authority of Christ like few other passages do. And we're reminded of how the Gospel of John began. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's Gospel begins with the reality of the deity of Christ. And because he's tied so closely to the words of God, because God's words are declarative in that they, they speak things into existence, Christ is tied so closely to the words of God that he's literally called the word of God. The one who speaks and acts in the power of God as God. And now in John 11, we've been slowly making our way toward the tomb of the friend of Jesus, Lazarus. He's died four days previously and now has been entombed in the family cave-like tomb outside the village of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem and Jesus, so often meek, so often mild, and yet never losing his authority. Now he shows us authority, divine authority, heavenly authority, godly authority. And I'd like to organize his, his authority here in the form of decrees. He makes decrees that only God can make. Here's his first decree. He decrees future life. He decrees future life. Now, Jesus has made the four-day walk south toward Bethany from where he was. He was originally where John the Baptist had been doing his ministry a couple of years prior. And now, after receiving word that Lazarus was sick, he waited until Lazarus had died, makes the four-day journey south. He was met on the road by Lazarus' sister Martha, then by his other sister Mary had conversations with them. There's many friends, many family, even professional mourners, and probably a significant number of just really curious people that have come alongside this prominent family, this wealthy family, as they mourn. Mary was weeping. The Jews surrounding the family were weeping. And in verse 35, we saw that Jesus wept. But we observed last time that his weeping was misunderstood. It was mischaracterized by those around him. Some thought it was merely his love for Lazarus. Others thought it was because he was too late to heal him and he was mourning that fact. I didn't get here on time. The last time we examined the real reasons that Jesus wept, that first of all, he wept because of the results of sin, that mankind has been separated from God because of sin. We saw secondly that he wept because of the enemy of death. Death is God's enemy, Death is mankind's enemy. Death has been victorious over mankind all the way since the inception of the curse in the Garden of Eden. And death yet again claimed another victim. And then we saw, thirdly, that Jesus wept because of the lack of faith. The lack of faith. The Jews all around him are showing an immature and undeveloped and underdeveloped faith in him as Lord, as Messiah, as Savior. And we saw in verse 33 that Jesus was deeply moved. It's not a word that means he was sad. It's a word that literally means he was snortingly angry. He was indignant. He was outraged. The weeping of Jesus was not, as we saw, this outward just sobbing and and wailing and moaning. It was an inward, quiet rage against his enemy. And it was the silent sobbing of one who is about to fight back, one who is about to unleash victory over his enemies. And now the scene begins to unfold in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. 
It was a cave, and the stone lay against it. Having come to the tomb, he is deeply moved again. Same word as in verse 33. He's indignant. He's outraged. He's snortingly angry. But to help you kind of understand the gravity of this scene, I want to just pause here for a minute and fast forward almost 2,000 years to another scene that you're probably a lot more familiar with, but has some similarities. Now, you may not know the names of Mrs. M.J. King or R.J. Coleman, but they are the witnesses on record in October of 1881 when a 34-year-old marshal by the name of Wyatt Earp, alongside his brothers and deputy marshals Virgil and Morgan Earp, their dentist friend Doc Holliday, these famous guys, they went and confronted murderers and cattle rustlers, Ike and Billy Clanton, Frank and Tom McClowry, and their friend Billy Claiborne, at the good old O.K. Corral. According to R.J. Coleman, one of the Earps told the Clantons and the McClary's, give up your guns, put up your hands. Nobody knows exactly what happened next because there is a lot of smoke and a lot of noise, but they do know that the Clanton gang refused, guns were drawn, and in less than about 20 seconds, Billy Clanton, both McClary brothers were dead, Virgil and Morgan Earp and Doc Holliday were all wounded. Ike Clanton and Billy Claiborne had run for their lives. And Wyatt Earp, bullets flying all around him, stood there unscathed. Now, this confrontation had been building for a long time. And part of the story you don't always hear is that by the time the the Earp brothers were ready to confront the Clanton gang, they were determined that we're going to end this conflict today. Something is going to happen today. Now, as the marshal, Wyatt Earp didn't actually have a lot of local authority. And another part of the story you don't always hear is that Sheriff John Behan of Cochise County, Arizona, tried to stop them. He stood in the road and said, no, you're not going to do this. And they just pretty much walked around him and completely ignored him. The battle was going to be fought today. The battle was going to be determined today. And hopefully the battle was going to be won today. They went all the way around him. Now, I only bring up this famous part of American history because the situation that Jesus is in is actually very similar. He's incensed. He's indignant. The enemy of death has claimed another victim. The people around him don't believe that he has the power to defeat death. And Jesus is going to confront quite literally the greatest enemy of mankind. And like the Earp brothers confronting evil in their county in the town of tombstone arizona we come to like tombstone israel now where a literal stone over a literal tomb mocks humanity and makes fun of our utter powerlessness against death and jesus utters these astounding words in verse 39 jesus said take away the stone If you go back to Tombstone, Arizona, that is taking your trench coat and exposing your guns because something's about to go down. He's thrown down the gauntlet. He's committing himself to battle. But these words, take away the stone, these are extremely significant. They're important because before he actually does anything, before he demonstrates anything, these words represent a decree. He is decreeing that life is about to happen. He's decreeing future life. These words signify that he's about to do something that no one but God can do. By the words of his mouth, he will decree life and he will conquer death. And this is so bold. This is so audacious. 
He's asking for the stone in front of the tomb to be rolled away. It'd be a similar tomb to the one that he would be entombed in before he's actually done anything. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm about to try to raise the dead, I'm not going to be so certain it's going to happen. And so I might hedge my bets a little bit, but Jesus doesn't do that. He's not silently praying for something to happen, then going and listening at the tomb to see if anything's going on in there. He's not saying, let's pray for Lazarus's family during their time of mourning and grief. He's saying, let's end this now. Roll away the stone. And just to make certain that we know that this isn't a parlor trick, this isn't magic, this isn't prestidigitation of any kind, Martha speaks up. In verse 39, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. I think a lot is made of this statement to say that Martha had a lack of faith. I don't think that statement has anything to do with Martha. This is just a statement about Lazarus. The family would have wrapped the arms and the legs, the face and the head of Lazarus in burial clothing, soaked in spices in order to temporarily mask the odor of decaying flesh. But after four days, the odor of human decomposition is just going to overwhelm any of the spices. The point of Martha's statement is not, well, Martha has has weak faith. The point of Martha's statement is Lazarus is as dead as dead can be. He's not in a coma. He's not going to spontaneously wake up for crying out loud. He's decomposing. His body isn't all there anymore. But Jesus, fully God and the conqueror of death, has decreed future life. And in the case of Lazarus, his future life is about 60 seconds away. There's a second decree of the voice of divine authority. He decrees God's glorification. He decrees God's glorification. In verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, this is a reference to the conversation that Jesus had with Martha earlier in the chapter when she met him on the road to Bethany. This refers to a part of the conversation that is not recorded in Scripture, but now it's mentioned. And it really reveals to us the the big picture, why this entire drama is playing out in which Jesus, fully knowing that Lazarus is going to die before it ever happens, he allows him to die. He delays coming. Why did he do this? You remember in chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And we get that. We understand that. But here's my question. What kind of man can decree that the glorification of God is about to happen? Who does that? I mean, not even Moses. Moses is arguably the greatest man of the Old Testament. Not even Moses, the prophet of God, the king-like leader of God's people, the spokesman of God, the lawgiver of God. Not even Moses could decree the revealing of God's glory. All he could do was ask. Exodus thirty three eighteen. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. God is the one that Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 16, alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Exodus twenty four seventeen says, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people in Israel. 
Revelation 15, 8 describes the heavenly temple. You would think in heaven, everybody has access to everything, right? Wrong. And the sanctuary, that is the temple, was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary. Even the people in heaven at certain times are restricted from seeing the glory of God. And yet Jesus says, you will see God's glory today. What kind of man can decree that he will reveal the glory of God? Only the one who can speak to God, according to John 17, 5, concerning the glory that I had with you before the world began. Only the one who has the same glory can reveal the glory. And unlike the Earp brothers who were outnumbered four to five, and it was anyone's guess as to who would win that confrontation, Jesus has decreed it. He's decreed that the glory of God is about to be displayed. There's no hesitation. There's no doubt. There's a third decree of the voice of divine authority. He decrees faith. He decrees faith. Verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Now the drama is getting intense. There's a significant crowd watching this and for the the benefit of those whose faith in verses 36 and 37 was underdeveloped, inadequate. He continues in his prayer in verse 42. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And look at this. Jesus already knows the outcome. He already knows what's going to happen. He already knows that the Father is in full accord with what he's about to do. And he addresses God in this this personal fashion, this intimate relationship as Father And he says, I thank you that you have heard me, meaning Jesus has already been in prayer about this situation. He's had a four-day walk to do this. And with great confidence, he thanks his father that his prayer has been previously heard. But I want you to be very, very, very clear about something. I read to you earlier the passage from 1 Kings 17, and Elijah prayed for resurrection. Jesus did not pray for the resurrection of Lazarus. He already has the power to do it. And so whatever the prayer was that Jesus was thanking God for, it wasn't thank you for raising Lazarus. Jesus is going to do that. This is not Jesus praying for Lazarus to be raised. He's just acknowledging that the Father is in complete agreement with the power and the authority that Jesus has to confront and to beat death. But the key to the prayer of Jesus, the key to how God will be glorified is a little Greek conjunction, a little transition word that indicates purpose, that they may believe that you sent me. That's his whole purpose here. You understand that Jesus is doing what only God can do. He's decreeing faith. He's decreeing belief in him. Now, for all who would say that faith in Christ is a humanly generated product, Jesus is saying the opposite of that. That he, God the Son, is doing something to hand out faith, to dispense faith, to produce faith. This is based on what Jesus is about to do. These may be strong words, but I'm going to say them anyway. I think it's careless, I think it's reckless, and I think it's arrogant to believe that humans can produce in other humans faith in the living God. That's a supernatural phenomenon that you can't do. 
Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. When Simon Peter made his great confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus replied in Matthew 16, 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, it is supernaturally imparted. Paul said in Galatians 1, 15 and 16, that God set him apart before he was born and, quote, was pleased to reveal his son to me. It was God's work to reveal, to give faith. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, that the salvation from sin through the crucified Christ, quote, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now, if you've been at Grace Bible Church for any amount of time, you understand this, you, you get this. Faith is a gift from God. And I love those verses that I just read because they reveal to us after the fact that faith was produced by God. It's the after picture. But you know what's unique about the statement that Jesus has just made here in John 11? This is a before picture. This is a prediction of what he's about to do, that he's about to impart faith And then we get the after picture. Look at verse 45. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what's the next word? Believed in him. Jesus decreed faith and it came to pass. This is no small thing. This is no small thing at all. We have to remember that because of total human depravity, Romans 3 tells us that our own capabilities when it comes to faith are, are utterly insufficient. Romans 3, 11 through 18 gives us 14 statements that tells us just how sufficient we are to produce faith in ourselves. Here are the statements. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. They're worthless. No one does good, not even one. The throat is an open grave. We have deceptive speech, venomous tongues, mouths which curse God, mouths which issue bitterness against God, murderous hearts. We pave a pathway to ruin and misery. There's no peace with God in humanity. There's no fear of God in humanity. What part of that do we not understand? But Jesus Christ, cutting through all of that total depravity with the voice of divine authority, decrees faith just like he did for you, just like he did for me. What a voice of divine authority. He decrees future life. He decrees God's glorification. He decrees faith. And of course, one more decree. He decrees resurrection. He decrees resurrection. Jesus, the hero of the story, the only one who can stand up to the enemy of death, his eyes have been heavenward and upward as he has been in prayer. And now his gaze straightens. And he goes to look toward his enemy, toward the tomb, toward death. And in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, John here, he wants to make sure that we understand this is not Jesus using some holy whisper. There's a double emphasis here. The verb cried out, it already means to shout. But then John adds, Phonemegale, a great voice, a loud voice. So he cried out loudly with a loud voice. Just to make sure we understand that Jesus doesn't whisper people to life. You know, I've, I've seen this happen. Maybe some of you have too. How many bereaved people have desperately shouted at the bodies of their deceased loved one 
to come back, to get up, to get well. And nothing happens. But when Jesus decrees resurrection, verse 44, the man who had died came out. What else is he going to do? Just minutes earlier, Jesus had told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, he shall live. And now Jesus has given an undeniable example. The decaying body of Lazarus has been restored to its former health. The soul of Lazarus reunited with his body. And now the smoke clears after the fight at the real tombstone conflict. Death has been defeated. Lazarus is alive. Jesus is victorious. God has been glorified. All as he decreed would happen. Jesus had just said in John chapter 5, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. See also, six chapters later, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Listen, it's one thing to say it. It's another one to do that. Jesus has authoritatively backed up his divine decree of resurrection. By the way, he always cares for those that he resurrects. After Jesus raised a little girl from the dead in Mark 5, he told those around him to give her something to eat. And Lazarus, bound in the burial clothes and awkwardly scooting his way out of the grave, needs to be unbound. And Jesus directs those around him. How much do you want to bet that Mary and Martha were the first ones to get to him? And Jesus freed him. He freed him. The decree of resurrection resulted in him being loosed from the grave clothes, which should have eventually rotted over the centuries as the body of Lazarus decomposed into dust until both his body and his memory were gone forever. But Lazarus is free. He's free. Now, I'm certain that you're already seeing this, so all I'm going to do now is point out the obvious to you. The resurrection of Lazarus provides for us a, an intentional and a beautiful living picture of our salvation from sin. The purchase of your pardon from God. The first decree that Jesus made is a decree of future life. He made this decree for you. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. How can Jesus say, you won't be judged? That's easy. He's the judge, and he just decided. This is the decree of Christ. You cannot tell me you're keeping your salvation because you're nicer to your mother than you used to be. Your salvation is kept because Christ has decreed it. The second decree, God's glorification. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of what? Of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus himself is described in Hebrews 1 as the radiance of God's glory. Philippians 2.11 says that we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. And Jesus did make a request about you. He did make a decree. In John 17.24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That is the decree of Christ. His third decree, he decrees faith. John 6, 29, Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. How did you believe? Because God worked. That's how. 
God gave you faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the decree of Christ. And his fourth decree, resurrection. He decrees resurrection at this very moment. At this very moment, you are in resurrection power. You are in what one writer called the vortex of eternity. You will be raised up. You will be resurrected. Colossians 3, 1 says that you have been, past tense, raised with Christ. But there will be a day when that's consummated in reality, when the actual body that you have right now will be enlivened and invigorated, resuscitated, revived, restored, glorified. Today, the most depressing place on earth to be is a cemetery. On resurrection day, it's going to be the greatest place to be. And how will your resurrection happen? Exactly the same way it happened for Lazarus. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and with a cry, a loud shout of command, the dead in Christ will rise. What do you think this command will be? We already know. Your name plus come out. Your name. The omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent Savior God will simultaneously call every individual believer's name. Why did Jesus say, Lazarus, come out? Well, the old joke is, is because if he didn't say Lazarus, everybody would be resurrected. Lazarus is just your precedent so you can see what's going to happen. But all that's still in the future. And in the meantime, there's another decree from our authoritative Lord Jesus that we must endure for the time being. Maybe it's not our favorite, but it is true. It is his decree. The Gospel of John uses the concept of world in several ways. And one of those ways is to represent all that is against God, all who hate God. Jesus made a decree. He made a prediction about what we must endure for the time being. John 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world because I chose you out of the world. Here's the decree. Therefore, the world hates you. John himself echoed this decree in 1 John three thirteen. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And just as before, Lazarus gives us our picture of this decree as well. You notice that when Lazarus is raised, everything that has that certainly happened immediately following, all of that isn't recorded here. What, what do we know must have happened? The tears and the laughter of Martha and Mary, the the rejoicing of the crowd, the embrace that must have taken place between Lazarus and Jesus. But none of it's there. Why? Because this is not the true glorious ending to the story. Lazarus was not raised with a glorified body yet. He was just given back the body he had. What happened next? The happiness and joy of Martha and Mary, the new life of Lazarus would be short-lived because the end of the story is that Lazarus was murdered. Lazarus was murdered. There are three little verses that are so often skipped over, often neglected. Frankly, even in scholarly commentaries, they are literally left out. And they happen in the next chapter, but I want to highlight them right now. Look with me at John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus has now returned to Bethany and people have not come just to see Jesus. They've come to see Lazarus. Now, the text never explicitly says that Lazarus was murdered, but there are significant clues left behind that the focus of the passage is much more on Christ. And so details about Lazarus are are brief or they're left out, but the clues are definitely here. Let me give you a few of them. The first clue we'll just call the conspirators. The conspirators. Chapter 11, verse 47 says that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the entire Jerusalem council, the Sanhedrin, together. And in verse 53, this was the result. Look at 1153 with me. So from that day on, they made plans to put him, that is Christ, to death. So that's the outcome. The whole council gathering together, they have plotted against Jesus. How successful were they? From their eyes, they were completely successful. But in chapter 12, verse 10, there's a smaller group So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. This is a corrupt group within the Sanhedrin who have expanded the the, the plot. You think the Sanhedrin are bad? The, The group of the chief priests, the smaller group of leaders, they're even worse. The whole council is plotting against Jesus, but the chief priests alone, which included the Sadducees, the relatives of the chief priests, they're privately plotting against Lazarus, Caiaphas, his family, desperately wanting to to stay in power. In fact, the word in verse 12 translated made plans, it's in what's called the middle voice. It means they made plans amongst themselves. It was a plot which apparently left out the Pharisees and as evil and as wicked as the Pharisees are, even they wouldn't condemn an innocent man. Yes, they condemned Jesus, but they didn't believe he was innocent. But even they wouldn't have condemned Lazarus because what did Lazarus do? He didn't do anything. The chief priests and the Sadducees have significant reasons to want Lazarus dead. First of all, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection and they taught this openly to everyone. Lazarus is a problem because he's a huge embarrassment walking around. So, So there's the religious embarrassment. The second reason the the chief priests and the Sadducees have significant reason to want Lazarus dead, if they're shown to be fools, this will threaten their power base from which they get monetary benefits from controlling temple life. This would be a financial blow to them. And notice something here. They didn't deny the miracle. They knew that Lazarus had been really dead and that he was really alive. And so instead they sought to kill Lazarus because the Jews were being drawn to Christ. And what was the life of Lazarus? The life of Lazarus was the greatest witnessing tool in the history of the world. It provided a platform for many of these Jews to confidently, as we saw in 1145, to place their faith in Christ. And this would take away political, take away religious control from the chief priests. So Lazarus had to go. Now, the fact that it's the chief priests and the family only plotting against Lazarus, that didn't directly prove that they actually did it but I believe it makes it almost certain that they did. Why? If the entire council was audacious enough to decide to murder Jesus, dozens of men in agreement and not particularly in secret, 
How much easier would it be for a very small group of men to secretly plot against a helpless man? No accountability at all, and wickedness thrives in an atmosphere of no accountability. First clue left behind, we'll call the conspirators. That's the second clue left behind, we'll just call the context. The context, chapter 11, verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It uses a very specific word, It's only used a few times in the New Testament, which indicates a a clear intention to carry something out. Made plans doesn't mean thinking about it, pondering about it, having discussions about it, having possible meetings about it, talking about it. Made plans means planning the details. What's going to happen, when, and who's going to do it? But the context is important because that very same verb, the very same verb form is used in chapter 12, verse 10 to speak of making detailed plans to murder Jesus, to murder Lazarus, rather. There are other verb forms that would be used if this was just a hope, a wish, a desire, but it wasn't. It was a plot. It was a plan. And so the plot against Jesus was serious enough to be carried out even in the midst of a public trial, even in the midst of crowd control issues, how much easier would it be to quietly dispose of Lazarus? There's a third clue left behind. We'll just call the composition. The composition. Verse 10, so the chief priest made plan to put Lazarus to death. Important word here, as well. As well. This connects grammatically directly back to eleven, chapter 11, verse 53. It can be, Translated also, so the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death also, referring to what? Referring back to verse 53, where Jesus was going to be put to death. In other words, there is the same level of intent, the same level of of desire, the same level of planning and determination to carry out the plot. The same level existed with planning to plot against Christ and planning to plot against Lazarus. And even the composition of the text tells us this. And there's a fourth clue. This is not a clue in the text itself, but one that nevertheless is important. We'll just call this clue the consensus. The consensus. Scholarly commentators on John who believe Lazarus was murdered abound. Let me just give you a short list. D.A. Carson. His very life provided a ground for faith in Jesus, so he too had to be destroyed. Hanchen, Funk, and Busi said, the raising of Lazarus demonstrates that Jesus is the dispenser of life and Jesus' opponents can only think of how to put the newly resurrected Lazarus back into his grave. They continue, since the presence of Lazarus is propaganda for Jesus, Lazarus must also be eliminated. Gerald Borchert, the presence of Lazarus as a living witness to the power of Jesus meant that the plot now had to be expanded to include the resuscitated Lazarus. Colin Cruz, Earlier, the Sanhedrin, of which the chief priests were a most influential part, decided to kill Jesus to remove the threat. Now Lazarus, too, was added to that threat, so the simple solution was they must kill him as well. R.C.H. Linsky, for this reason, the Jews believing on, on Jesus, Lazarus had to be killed. The criminality of the Sadducean rulers was outrageous. Edwin Bloom, the chief priest, planned to kill two men, Jesus and Lazarus. And John Calvin, who's always a little bit more wordy, he says this, listen carefully. For this wicked consultation is thus described for the purpose of informing us that the enemies of Christ were led to so great obstinacy 
not by mistake or folly, but by furious wickedness, so that they did not even shrink from making war against God. And also for the purpose of informing us that the power of God was not dimly seen in the resurrection of Lazarus, since ungodliness can contrive no other method of banishing it from remembrance than by perpetuating a base and shocking murder on an innocent man. Translation, they were so wicked that they would do anything. But my favorite comments are by the Puritan pastor and scholar Matthew Henry. He said, they would put Lazarus to death and challenge almighty power to raise him again as if they could contend with God and try titles with the king of kings. Who has the the keys of death in the grave? He or they? They thought they did. They thought they could kill him. And they did. He'll just be raised again. Listen. Listen. This is so important for us because there is no such thing as neutrality regarding Jesus Christ. You must pick a side. Why must you pick a side? Because the voice of Christ is the voice of divine authority and disinterested is not a viable position. You don't get to have that choice because Jesus won't be issuing holy whispers on judgment day. The world hated Lazarus because it hates Christ. And yes, Christ, the voice of divine authority, has decreed that the world will hate you if you love Christ. But the voice of divine authority has also said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have what? Overcome the world. 1 John 4, 3 and 4, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 5, verse 4, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In the very next verse, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is? is the Son of God. And from that voice of divine authority, though we do have tribulation, though we do walk in a world that hates us, we have joy, we have peace, we have contentment, we have hope, and we have all of those decrees that Jesus showed us in Lazarus, they all belong to you. They all belong to you. I wish off the top of my head I could remember every single person's name in this room because I would love to use your name and remind you that Jesus will use your name and say, come out. Come out. What joy and what confidence and what peace we have that when you close your eyes in death, he will reopen them and it'll be spectacular when he does. Our Father, we come to you now to the Lord's table because of the death of Christ. And while we have focused today on resurrection, for resurrection to happen, death had to happen first. And Lord, we know and we understand all too well that the wages of sin is death and we were not able to pay that price. And while the verse in Romans continues, the free gift of God salvation in Christ we are mindful that 
it was not free to you. It was not free to Christ. It was because of a horrific judgment-style death that Christ endured on our behalf that we can have resurrection hope, resurrection joy. And so, Lord, we are now this morning in, in what we believe is the pinnacle, the high point of Christian worship. We would come to you now to remember the Lord in the Lord's table in which he has given us this simple command that we take bread and we take the cup and we remember his body, we remember his blood with which he purchased our salvation. And so, Lord, it is with joyful hearts and yet with somber hearts that even now we come to the Lord's table. We pray, Lord, for a right attitude. We pray for a right sobriety because while we celebrate our own salvation, we simultaneously remember that he died and he died for us. And so, Lord, be with us now in this time of worship as we come to the Lord's table.